Would you take your Bible with me and turn to John chapter 6? John chapter 6 this morning, we're going to be looking at a, a relatively large chunk of verses compared to what we have looked at together in the past. John chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 41 through 59, um, and we're going to spend time unpacking uh, what Jesus says here in, in these verses. This is not an easy passage by any means, and in fact, it represents one of the more difficult passages in John's gospel. And so I'm going to ask for you right out of the gate, uh, look, we're, going to, we're going to really bear down on this text this morning, and, uh, and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit enlivens us and enlightens our mind to both receive by faith what he has communicated to us through John the Apostle John, and then also that we might understand and better apply his words to, to our lives as well. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 41, and I'm going to read through verse 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the, father, that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. J.I. Packer once said, um, specifically related to this text, but uh, a larger uh, idea in general, he once said that the doctrine of justification was the storm center of the Reformation. Now, if you're not familiar with the Reformation, um, the Reformation uh, is one of the most important historical events in Western civilization as a whole, and probably globally. Um, in the last 500 years. Few events have had as much impact on the way that our lives look today as 500 years ago the Reformation did. 
And you've no doubt heard in history class or here even at Buffalo City Church, we often quote names like Martin Luther and John Calvin, who were major players during the, the Reformation. Now, although the Reformation had implications that reverberated really across the globe, it really did begin in, in the church. And really, at the end of this month, we're celebrating another anniversary of the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Castle door. That happened uh, in, on October 31st of 1517. And so we're just uh, 504 years away from that event. Uh, the Catholic Church had strayed from biblical doctrine on many fronts, and that's what precipitated this event, the event of the Reformation. And you hear it there, the reformation, right? In that word, reformation. The Reformation um, was a reforming or an attempt to reform uh, the church. And like J.I. Packer said, uh, right at the center of that whole, uh, that whole ordeal was this, the, the doctrine of justification. Packer defines justification as he talks about this, and he writes, Justification is the judicial act of God's pardoning sinners, wicked and ungodly persons, accepting them as just, and so putting permanently right their previously estranged relationship with him. This justifying sentence is God's gift of righteousness, his bestowal of all status of acceptance for Jesus' sake. Now, that's a mouthful, right? You're like, wow, okay, that was a a very concentrated sentence. Thanks, J.I. Packer. But the question that we want to ask this morning as we unpack John chapter 6, these verses in John chapter 6, is related to the very last thing that he says, acceptance for Jesus' sake. Since we are guilty of sinning against a holy God, we are guilty of sinning against a holy God. And since we are guilty of sinning against a holy God, how are we to be accepted by God? How are we to be accepted by God? That's the question, how are we to be justified? When you hear someone ask, how, how does justification work? How does justification come about? someone's talking theologically, what they're saying is, how are we to be accepted by God when we have sinned against him? Now again, this is the storm center of the Reformation because the Catholic Church taught and still teaches today that your good works are part of the equation. Essentially that the equation is faith plus works plus equals justification or equals acceptance by God. But one of the key elements of the Reformation was that Scripture taught that it wasn't faith plus works that, uh, that results in our acceptance by God, but it's faith and on the basis of faith alone. Justification is on the basis of faith alone. So, to simplify, faith is the basis of our acceptance by God. We are not accepted by God because of our works. You are not accepted by God because of your good marriage or because of your good parenting practices or because your hard work or because you're kind to your neighbor or because you uh, give charitably. You are not accepted by, by God for any of those reasons. You are accepted by God on the basis of faith alone. And so what faith does is it has the effect of joining us with Christ. It joins us with Christ 
And then his good works, as a sinless Savior, his good works then are credited to us. They are given to us so that it's by faith alone that we are joined to Christ. And when we are joined to Christ, all that he did and all that he accomplished is then given to us. We are credited to us. We become the beneficiaries of all that he ever did. You've sinned against God. I've sinned against God. Jesus never sinned against God. So Jesus is the only one who was truly righteous, we would say. Jesus is the only one who truly righteous. And the good news is that when, again, we repent of our sins and when we trust Jesus, faith is given to us as a good gift. And then Jesus' perfect righteousness, as we are joined to him, Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to us so that we can stand before a holy God. So this is the correct understanding of the doctrine of justification. From an equation 504 years ago that said faith plus works equals justification to an equation that said faith alone equals justification. Justification is by faith alone. Our acceptance by God is by faith alone. Or in Latin, you may have heard this, sola fide. This text in John chapter 6 that we're looking at this morning is one of the most wildly misinterpreted texts in all of Scripture. And even as we read it, I'm sure you were like, okay, what is going on here? What's happening here in this text? What is Jesus even saying here? Why is he going here with these people who continue to grumble against him and question him? The heartbeat of Jesus' words here have to do with that doctrine of justification or the question, how are we to be accepted by God? What is the basis for our acceptance by God? You'll remember last week when we were talking about uh, the, the passage before this one, that we see very clearly that Jesus, one of the qualities of the life that Jesus offers, one of the qualities of the eternal abundant life that Jesus gives to us, that is our possession now, one of the qualities of that is belonging or being eternally welcomed by God the Father. There is nothing that can snatch us out of the Father's hands because of Jesus' work on our behalf. Because that's the case, or we see that taking effect here. Because when the doctrine of justification and Jesus' words in this passage answer how we can have eternal belonging, how can we be accepted by God for all of eternity? Wouldn't we mess it up? Wouldn't we do something that would cause us to be, to be, to be seen as something other than righteous by God? The answer is yes, we can mess it up. But the reality is not in the way that we think. You and I, sinful creatures, cannot be snatched out of the Father's hands because it's not on the basis of our works that we're justified or accepted by God, but on the basis of Christ's. And therefore, our welcoming and our belonging are eternal. We can never be snatched out of the Father's hands because it is not on the basis of our works that we are justified or accepted by God, but on the basis of Christ's. Here's the beauty of all of this. Here's the beauty of all this. God graciously explains this to us. 
He tells us about this in his word. He tells us exactly who we are and how this works. Last week, this statement, I made this statement, God the Father presented God the Son with you that the Son might be your justification leading to your adoption into God's family. And that's the portrait that Jesus paints. That's the portrait that the New Testament paints. This acceptance by God. But it's not this like passive sort of like, oh yeah, you're fine now. It'll be okay. It's not this passive thing, but it is, it is this love that is poured out on us. A, a, a love that is lavished upon sons and daughters of God. Because when we are accepted by God, it's more than just a like, yeah, that's fine, you're, you're okay. It is legitimately sonship. It is legitimately daughtership. Because through our justification, through our acceptance by God, we are brought into, the New Testament is clear, a family. We are brought into a family. We're being treated more than, than or just like blood because of the adoption that this leads to. We, are be, we have been adopted. And that's the imagery that the New Testament uses. When Paul in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's more than just being treated like blood. It's actually being blood. It's actually having the legal status of a family member. When someone adopts a child, the Hellers have adopted two children in our congregation, and maybe you know many others who have adopted children. They don't just treat their children like blood. They've received all of the legal benefits of their family. They have been brought into their family and loved like children. Justification is a legal term and adoption is a legal declaration of sonship or daughtership. And so what I'm outlining for you is this benefit. The benefit that when we are accepted by God, it is not passive, but it is very, very active. It is very, very active. God, the Father, is our Father, and we have intimacy with Him at a deep and abiding level. And all of this because of what Jesus did. All of this because of Jesus' work and His righteousness credited to us, given to us. Because of Jesus' sinless life lived in perfect obedience to God the Father, and because of His substitutionary status, or sacrifice, we now have legal status, right standing with God. We have received the adoption as sons and daughters. And so I wanted to lay all of that out for you this morning because we're going to touch a bunch of those things throughout the course of our time exploring what Jesus, or Jesus says here in John chapter 6. And in our text, If you look at verse 41, right at the beginning, we learn that the Jews grumbled. We learn that the Jews grumbled about Jesus because of the previous declarations that he'd made. And he said, I am the bread of life. They grumble against it because they're like, what is this all about? He says, I, or because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And so immediately they say, we know this guy's parents. What, What does he mean? He came down from heaven. 
We know where he came from. We could go talk to his parents now. And so they grumble against him. They say, is he, how can this be true? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? He's not from heaven, he's from here. So Jesus, what he does in 41 through 51 is really reiterate what he said already and what we explored last week. But in verse 51, Jesus leaves them with a pretty shocking statement, right? Because he just kind of reiterates it. And I was just like, okay, yeah, okay, now we're, maybe we're getting to it. But then at the end of 51, what he says, he says, and, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Hold up. What? Hang on. And so this throws the Jews then into uh, an additional frenzy. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they say in verse 30, or 52. Excuse me. And the Jews disputed amongst themselves. Now, this passage, 52 through 59, this is where things appear odd and where we need to be careful. So what we want to do is carefully navigate these verses here, 52 through 59, together this morning. And again, I want you to put a pin in that understanding of the doctrine of justification, that we are accepted by God, by faith alone. In the works that Jesus did, and then through faith, our righteousness is credited to us in him. So, look with me. Look in your Bibles then at 52 through 59. I'm going to read this again because I want this to be fresh in your mind as we begin to unpack what Jesus is doing here. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Okay, so we need, to be, we need to be careful and we need to reach back into what else we've thought about in chapter 6 so far in John's Gospel. So far in chapter 6, if you'll remember over the course of the last several weeks as we've thought about several of these passages, Jesus feeds the 5,000 people with five fish or five bre- loaves of bread and two fish. And then he walks on the water, coming to his disciples in the midst of some pretty rough weather. And then after that, he begins in verse 22, preaching in sort of in this, uh, in this uh, there's a little bit of an exchange here, but then he begins preaching this sermon that we would call the bread of life discourse. So that's what we've explored together in John chapter six so far. Jesus indicates that he is here, that he is the bread that's come down from heaven, not just to feed hungry bellies, but rather he is the bread of life. Uh, That he brings a much longer lasting satisfaction, mainly eternal life and abundant life. Those things should be tied together. Those aren't separate. 
eternal life, abundant life. And the way that Jesus offers this uh, this instruction regularly here in John and really throughout the Gospels is that he ties what he is teaching directly to what he has done. So his actions at the beginning of John chapter 6 when he feeds the 5,000 with, uh, with five loaves of bread and two fish, there's an immediate connection based on what he's saying here, right? So there's an immediate connection between when he says, I'm the bread of life, they were like, okay, yeah, he just fed us food. And and he wants to show us then that that what he did physically, um, he wants to uh, indicate to us spiritually. He wants to show us a much larger truth spiritually based on what he did physically at the beginning of the chapter. Now, what we need to do is to Ask the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear and eyes to see the the realities of Jesus' metaphorical language here. Because Jesus is speaking metaphorically. And he has been this whole time. He has been this whole time. Throughout this entire sermon, Jesus has been speaking metaphorically. Jesus wants to use what the people just observed of him to explain who he is. He is the bread of life. Were the people talking to a loaf of bread? No, they weren't talking to a loaf of bread. They were, t- they were talking to a man. But these people, again, are getting it hung up in all the wrong places. So we get Jesus' statements, like in verse 53, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, we should, all, we should not all of the sudden think Jesus is speaking literally. Because so far throughout his, the, entire, the entire Bread of Life discourse, this sermon that he's preaching, he's spoken metaphorically. There is nothing in the text that indicates to us that we should go from literal or from metaphorical to literal now. There's nothing here. And so we need to say, okay, Jesus was talking about being the bread of life. He's talking about giving eternal satisfaction. He's talking about giving eternal belonging. He's talking about giving eternal security. He's talking about the abundant life that we have in in him. And now we need to realize that he's switching gears because he's switching up the metaphor a little bit here. When Jesus has given us no indication that we should change from metaphorical to literal, we need to remain believing that he is speaking metaphorically. Jesus isn't promoting cannibalism here. Jesus isn't talking about the, the, the literal pr- physical presence of his body and blood in the presence of the Lord's Supper. Instead, Jesus just continues with his metaphor. And it gets harder. And it gets harder for a reason. It gets harder because the people have hard hearts and they don't have eyes to see. And so he continues in this metaphorical language. If if he's the bread of life, then you need to eat him to receive his benefits. That's the heart of the idea here. The heart of the idea is if Jesus is the bread of life, then you need to eat him to receive his benefits. If you go home today after church and make yourself a sandwich and then you leave it on the counter, will you receive its benefits? Now, that may be a weird way of saying that, 
But if you go home today and you make a sandwich and you leave it on the counter, will you receive its benefits? The answer is, of course not. It, will it take care of your hunger? No. Will it provide you with protein and vitamins and minerals and carbs that you need to move throughout your day? No. If it's sitting there on the counter, if it's not ingested, if you don't chew it up and do the digestion process, you're not getting the benefits of the sandwich. It's just going to go bad sitting there on the counter. It's not going to satisfy your hunger for some roast beef on rye. <laughs> and so, if you leave it on the counter, you don't get the benefits. If you've got to eat it to receive it, if you've got to eat it to receive what the benefits that it provides to you, that's the same idea. It's the same idea here. If Jesus is, in fact, the bread of life that offers you eternal security, eternal belonging, and eternal satisfaction, if Jesus is, in fact, the bread of life that offers all of those things, then you need to ingest him. Then you need to come to him. You need to believe in him. Like he said at the end of the passage we looked at last week. Now, we can easily say this in less metaphorical terms that might land a little bit, a little bit easier for us. This is how we'd say it. If Jesus is the source of life, you need to come to him in faith to receive eternal life. Simple statement. If Jesus is the source of life, you need to come to him to, in faith to receive eternal life. Now, I hope what you're doing is looking at that statement and connecting the dots back to where we started this morning. Connecting the dots uh, back to the doctrine of justification. If we are to be accepted by God, then we need to be joined with Christ by faith. And by faith alone. If Jesus is the source of life, you need to come to him in faith to receive eternal life. Jesus says that if you come to him and believe in him, you'll never hunger or thirst again. He is the source of life. All the sustenance you need for everything is found in him. For everything. I'm including our physical life. Every piece of rye bread that you make your sandwich with is a result of him. Jesus is the source of life. We need to come to him in faith to receive eternal life. So that's what I want to expound on for the rest, the remainder of our time this morning. Jesus is the source of life. Therefore, you need to come to him in faith to receive eternal life. This is the language that Jesus used. There's an active, an active movement towards receiving the benefits that he offers to us. Now, Jesus does start talking about flesh and blood here, but he's already given us the metaphorical par parallel. Right, right there at the end of 51. This is the key. This is the clue that he's continuing the metaphor. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. He ties the bread that he's already been talking about when he says, I'm the living bread, to now to his flesh. And now he's extending the metaphor and saying, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is talking about flesh and blood. He still wants us to have in mind that he is the bread of life and that we need to come to him in faith to receive eternal life. 
But I'm convinced that he switches the metaphor here to give us a couple of key understandings. Now, these things aren't fully fleshed out in John's gospel yet, but because we have the whole New Testament and because we spend time reading God's word regularly, we have these categories in place already. So this would have been hard for the men and women who Jesus was speaking to to hear um, because they wouldn't have necessarily had all of these categories. Uh, Later in John's gospel, his disciples will actually make the exclamation, now you're speaking clearly, because when Jesus says things like this, they're left scratching their head just as many. But we have the full revelation of God before us. So what I want to do is, when Jesus introduces this idea of flesh and blood, he wants to convey important elements of his offer of eternal life. Right, the eternal life that is ours by faith, we're joined to Christ by faith, um, the acceptance by God that becomes ours, Jesus wants to give us some, some, uh, some building blocks. How is that actually going to happen? And so, um, right here, when he switches the metaphor to flesh and blood, we get our first real glimpse of the atonement here in John's Gospel. We get our first real glimpse of the atonement. So if you've been reading along with us in the Bible reading plan, I hope you have been. Um, last week, I think we wrapped up in Leviticus. Um, we started in September, and so we were in Leviticus, and before that, we were in Exodus. And it, you were probably thinking to yourself, there, is so, there are so many details here about sacrifices, right? Uh, there are so much, it's, it's just, it feels like when you're in it, it's endless. But in Leviticus and Exodus before that, the sacrificial system is laid out. And in order for God's people in the Old Testament, um, when the law was given in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, in order for God's people to remain in right standing with God, sacrifices had to be offered. This was the way that God set up things. And there was, uh, once a year, there was what we call the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go through a grueling process. You've read about that. It's just absolutely, I don't know how he had energy to pull all that off. But he would go through this grueling process to offer sacrifices to atone or to pay for the sins of Israel as a nation of people. And then if you remember all the way back to Exodus in our reading plan, um, before that, you'll remember when God actually delivered his people out of Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. God promised sort of as this last plague or this last sign to give to Pharaoh. He promised to kill the firstborn son of every household so that Pharaoh would free the Israelites from slavery. But to the Israelites, God told them, he said to them, um, sacrifice a lamb without blemish, put its blood over the door of the house, and then they were told to what? They were told to eat the lamb. Exodus 12, 7. We oftentimes, when we think about the, right, we think about the blood over the door, on the doorposts and over the lintel, right? But the reality is also the command includes eat the lamb. They, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. You can hear the echoes of that in Jesus' words, right? You can hear the echoes. When he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The blood over the doorpost, the, 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 the lamb on the table. And just like the lamb was killed and its blood was covering 
and his flesh was eaten in the households of Israel, ultimately leading to their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that delivers us from our sin. And just like the high priest would offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement to pay for the sins of the people, Jesus offers himself body and blood. Actual physical body broken. Actual physical blood spilled as sacrifice to atone for our sin. So I'm convinced that Jesus switches here from bread to flesh and blood to tell us something about how our sins would be atoned for. How that justifying work that is absolutely essential would come to pass. How we are to be justified and brought into God's family. The lamb without blemish would receive the stripes on his back that belong to us. The blood that he spilt perfectly satisfying the need for sacrifices to be made. Jesus is getting, giving us new information about how we will become the recipients of eternal life. Eternal life comes through the forgiveness of our sins that is a result of Christ's bodily sacrifice. So then what about the eating component here, right? The eating and drinking of the flesh and the blood. Again, when we have bread in front of us and we eat it, we say we receive it. And through the reception of it, we receive the benefits of it. Jesus is talking about receiving what only he can provide. Jesus provides atonement for our sins through his sacrifice. In him is life, and he freely gives eternal and abundant life. So then we are declared right before God. We are justified by God by faith alone. What links us to Jesus? What links us to his his sacrificial death? What links us to his sinless life? It's by faith alone. The eating and the drinking that Jesus talks about here in this passage is receiving the benefits of Christ by faith. By faith, we receive Christ and all that Christ offers to us. Eternal life, life everlasting, life forever, abundant life, satisfied, welcomed, secure. Look at how many times Jesus says it, just in these few simple verses. Verse 53. He says, without faith, you have no life in you. In verse 54, the one who has faith will be raised in the last day. Verse 56, the one who has faith abides in Christ and Christ abides in that one. Verse 57, the one who has faith will live because of Christ. In verse 58, the one who has faith will live forever. Those things are only possible because faith is the link between us in Christ. And we are accepted by God on his, on his work and the basis of what he did. So in conclusion, what I want to do is camp out here a bit on our understanding of faith. I want to think about faith because if that is the link, what links us to Christ and what is the basis of our justification, the basis of our acceptance by God, then this passage 
The call by Jesus himself to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, that's a call to faith. It's a call to faith. Because the word faith gets tossed around in our society a lot. And you know I've hammered on this in the past. But the biblical definition of faith sometimes looks very different than the way that our culture talks about it. If Jesus is going to make this massive statement here about how our sins would be atoned for, how we'd be justified by God, how we'd become his sons and daughters through adoption, and how we would receive the benefits of Christ, and if all that comes to us by faith alone, you should be asking, what is faith? What Do I have faith? You shouldn't just be thinking about a word that gets knit on a throw pillow or in a vinyl decal above your kitchen sink. That's sometimes what faith is reduced to in our society. Faith is not just a religious belief system. Someone might ask you the question, well, what is your faith? Asking, are you a Christian? Are you a Muslim? Are you a Buddhist? The biblical understanding of faith is robust. It's God-given. It's Christ-authored. We should quote Packer again on this. He said, Faith is the link between ourselves and God of transforming love who saves us from sin and folly and ultimate disaster, who brings us into a life of joy and peace and wisdom and fruitfulness. Faith means quite simply trusting him by believing what he has told us and remember that the, that the real God is the God of the scriptures, a God who has revealed himself. He has spoken. He has given us promises to trust. Faith is this link. Faith is God-given. Faith is Christ-authored. Faith is not something that we conjure. We don't look at the words on the page in Scripture and immediately believe them uh, based on our own merit, but on what God freely gives to us. Faith is far more than just believing in something, but living in accordance to it and trusting it in all, uh, all areas of our lives. Usually, look at that definition again right at the end. Faith means quite simply trusting him by believing what he has told us in Scripture. And remember that the real God is the God of the Scriptures. Not something that's fabricated by our society or something that we make up in our own minds. We remember that real God is the God of the Scriptures. A God who has revealed himself again here in Scripture and has spoken. He has given us promises to trust again here in Scripture. So the reality of faith is that it is God-given, Christ-authored, and tied intimately to God's Word. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I have faith? When Jesus begins talking about um, his flesh and blood and eating it and receiving his benefits, Do I believe that the benefits that Jesus has outlaid for us in this gospel so far and God has laid out for us in all of Scripture, do I believe that God is faithful? Do I believe, do I trust Him to fulfill all of those things? Do I trust Him in my work, in my family life, in in my singleness? Do I trust Him when when I wake up in the morning and when I hop in the truck and when I go to the job site? Do I trust him when I go to bed and put my head on my pillow that someone's not going to break into my house? Do I trust him with my possessions? Do I trust him with every moment, my physical life, my health? 
Do I see that His promises are sure and given to me as one who is joined to Christ by faith? If the answer is yes, I have faith, then there, uh, there's a life that follows an evidence of joy and peace and wisdom and fruitfulness. If the answer is yes, I have faith, then your life ought to be full of evidence that you're trusting Jesus. Not seeking secular solutions to your problems, but rather you should be searching the scriptures, asking, what does God think about this? If the answer is yes, then, and you, then, then you, your life ought to be full of evidence of the hope that you have for this life and the next is tied intimately to the promises of God that find their yes in Jesus. The promises of God are littered throughout all of Scripture. The author of Hebrews gives a definition of faith. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You've heard that. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Men and women and boys and girls who live in the assurance of things hoped for, the assurance because God has promised them, these are those who feast on the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. Let me say that again. Men, women, boys, and girls who live in the assurance of things hoped for. Assurance because God has promised them. These are those who feast on the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. Men and women and boys and girls who live lives of inexpressible joy filled with glory because of the promised outcome of their faith is the salvation of their souls. And that promised outcome of their faith is absolutely unwaveringly certain. These are the ones who feast on the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. If you're like, I want that. I, I want to be that person who is unwaveringly assured of the hope that is provided to me in Christ. What you can't do is go from here and think to yourself, I got to do better. I got to buckle down a little bit inside of me. But what you need to realize is that all you need is Christ. And I want to make this clear. All, all, all you need is Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. Acceptance by God is on the basis of faith alone. Eternal life comes to you by faith alone. Abundant life comes to you by faith alone. I mentioned Colossians 3 the past couple weeks because I see such an intimate tie here. Paul says in Colossians 3, 4 that Christ is your life. The abundant life that Jesus brings is what is being described. It's not a little fire beneath you when you don't wake up and you're not quite sure that you want to do what you, what you need to do today. It, but it's rather it's being consumed by something beyond you. It's taking all of those loose ends that make don't make sense to you. You don't know what to do with. The life that you have in Christ is making sense of them. The feast of faith is coming to Christ for everything. Friends, it is my, it is my earnest desire that you would all come to Christ by faith and be joined to Him.
if you are outside of Christ, that you would that you would come to him this morning in repentance and that you would trust him for all of life. If you are in Christ this morning, that you would give yourself more, that you would feast upon the flesh and blood of Jesus and the faith in faith approach him for all that he offered. Faith connects us to Christ and all of his works become ours. Faith connects us with Christ and, and like he says in verse 54, his resurrection becomes ours. Faith connects us to Christ and his eternity becomes ours. An eternity, an eternity spent bathing in the good pleasure of your heavenly Father. This is good news. This is the good news that's contained here in this text. Is that those, if you are joined to Christ by faith, those who are joined to Christ by faith, even if you led a haphazard and distracted week, even if you led a haphazard, distracted week where your mind was far, from Jesus Christ, you did not ever once fall out of the mind of your heavenly Father. Because your acceptance by God is in the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. You did not once fall out of your heavenly Father's mind. And his only thought towards you was an extreme, intense, and unwavering love. Because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus did. And because you've been joined to him by faith. Christ is your life and your eternity will match his. Because by faith you are joined to him. All that he is. All that he has done. All that he has promised. It's yours. May our faith be nourished as we feast on Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you that we can come to Jesus by faith and receive all of his benefits for us. God, would we not fall into the sin of unbelief where we think that when I come to Jesus by faith, he may turn me away. The benefits that he promises to me may not belong to me. The eternal abundant life may not be mine. God, would we see that through our God-given, Christ-authored faith, God, would we see that you have made a promise to us. The promise of eternal, the promise of abundant life. That is our possession now. God, would we go to your word this morning and see the intimate tie between it our intake of it, and the faith that you freely give. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.